Well, I'm not here. Uh, I mean, I'm here, but uh, it's actually Saturday for me. Uh, Danny, Noah, and Jose, that's our incredible team that makes all the audio and video happen for us each week in the sanctuary and online. Right now, they are significantly distanced from me as we record this because on Thursday afternoon, I tested positive for COVID. I thought I had it after Christmas. Jennifer and Ben were positive and I had the same symptoms, so we save our tests. We all quarantined. Who knows? All I know is I have it now. That's why I'm not here or there. You, you know what I mean. So since things are already a little weird, I thought this morning we could try an experiment. Um, this is one of my unhealthy habits. Diet Dr. Pepper. Uh, Roland and the finance team, maybe you guys want to look into seeing if we can get a little kickback for this. I'm not sure. But there is uh, no better time than worship than to lay down our confessions. Uh, so I know, let me get over COVID. We can talk about my diet, Dr. Pepper issues. Anyway, for now, this morning, I want to pour it into this glass. Now, once the foam settles, now I know I'm not in the room with you, so this might be a little awkward, but go ahead and answer out loud. Uh, pretend that I poured exactly half. This glass is now half what? Okay, so again, I'm not here, I can't see you, but uh, I want you to go ahead and raise your hand if you said half full, so that everybody can identify all of our optimists in the room. Go ahead and raise your hand, see who the optimists are. You know, optimists and pessimists, I look at the same set of circumstances. And they either see that things are gonna work out well or they're not. And I imagine there are quite a few half full people here in the room this morning. You guys are a pretty optimistic group. That's why what I'm gonna say next might not sit very well with you. Uh, this comes from Tim Mackey. Um, I want him to tell you the bad news so you can be mad at him and not me. Uh, Tim started the Bible Project. They make those books of the Bible summary videos that we use in worship sometimes. Uh, if you're in any of my biblical literacy classes, you definitely know what I'm talking about. Uh, so Tim explains it like this. He says, which mindset is most consistent with what it means to be a Christian? Optimism or pessimism? Pessimism seems to be off the table. Our core confessions prevent us from being completely pessimistic about how things are gonna work out. But I want to argue that optimism should be off the table too. Because optimism is often naive. Simple optimism is actually not helpful to the human psyche. He goes on to say this. He says, optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope isn't focused on circumstances. Biblical hope is based on a person. Hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's not much evidence that things are gonna get better but they choose hope anyway. You see, he's arguing that neither optimism nor pessimism is sufficient for a Christian. That's why followers of Jesus have a different word. We are called to be a people of hope. Now, I can read this empty room already, even a day in advance of you guys being here, the optimists are starting to get a little frustrated. I get it. 
But of all people, you know, this is gonna work out just fine. So hang with me. We're gonna talk about this more after we read our passage for today and after we pray that all of this is going to work out. So I want you to listen to 1 Peter chapter one. If you wanna follow along, it's all the way in the back of the Bible, almost to the very end. If you work from the back, you have Revelation, Jude, the John letters, and then 1 and 2 Peter. So 1 Peter 1, starting in verse three, it says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. And let's pray. Father, as always, we pray that you would open our minds, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we can receive a good word, even one preached on Saturday and shown in church on Sunday. And we pray, as always, that you would use our hands and our feet, that our words, that our entire being would be an embodiment of this resurrection hope that we are talking about this morning. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. So we're working through a series uh, starting last week, and we're gonna go on through the month of May. We're calling it Living the Resurrection. Um, did you know that before the first Easter Sunday, the followers of Jesus, did you know that they never talked about the resurrection? Now, they most likely believed in an afterlife, but the idea of resurrection, even the resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't a concept. Now, Jesus spoke to them about it, and when he did, they were either confused or they were dismissive. Peter, one time, even corrected Jesus when Jesus is explaining that the Messiah has to die and then be raised to life, Peter tries to shut him down. Before the first Easter Sunday, the followers of Jesus never talked about the resurrection. But after, y'all, that's all they talked about. You see, last week, Mark showed us the way that Luke's gospel talks about the resurrected Christ in the weeks to come. We're gonna hear how Paul and John and other disciples of Jesus describe not only the resurrection of Jesus, but what it means for us. What it means for us eternally. What it means for us even here and now. So what I read to you this morning, this is what Peter has to say about it. Now you remember Peter, the one who corrected Jesus because the idea of death and resurrection was nonsense. Peter, the faithful follower of Jesus, until the trial and the crucifixion. There he was a denier, a betrayer in his own right. But when the women told him and the other disciples that Jesus was no longer in that tomb on that first Easter morning, Peter became the first to gird his loins and run off to see the evidence for himself. So this is about 30 years later. Peter is now a pastor 
and he's writing these two letters, first and second Peter, and these are letters to churches that were in Asia Minor, what's now modern day Turkey. He's writing to Gentile believers. Gentile is just a way of talking about any person who's not a Jew. Uh, so non-Jewish believers in the resurrected Christ, that's his audience. And he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, listen, that could really easily sound like Christian speak. Like, do you know what I mean? Um, A good, comforting, encouraging word that any pastor should say to his church. Y'all, Peter's not filling space with trite Christianese. This is an important word. And it's given intentionally to a people he loves. And he's addressing a very important issue. It's the reason that he wrote these letters in the first place. Listen again, this is verse six. He says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Y'all, he's writing these letters because the Christians he loved, they are suffering. The Roman Empire in the first century, especially after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was not a peaceful or safe place for Christians. Of course, you know they were physically persecuted in many ways. They were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were executed. They were also mocked, they were social outcasts. There were rumors about Christians that spread all throughout the empire, rumors that they were cannibals. When people heard that they ate the body and blood, they ate the body and drank the blood of their savior. Ironically, the Roman empire, of all things, considered Christians to be atheists because they denied and didn't worship the gods of Rome. Polycarp, uh, one of the great names in church history, but Polycarp was the bishop of the church in Smyrna uh, during the late first and early second centuries. Uh, So he was tried and executed by Rome. He was sentenced and executed for the crime of atheism. And at his trial, he said, 86 years I've served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. So how can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? At 86 years old, Polycarp was sentenced to be burned at the stake. Now, this comes from a source outside of scripture, but this is said to be an eyewitness account of his execution. It says this. It says, the fire was lit and the flame blazed furiously. We who were privileged to witness it saw a great miracle. And this is why we have been preserved to tell the story. The fire shaped itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind. It formed a circle around the body of the martyr. Inside it, he looked not like flesh that is burnt, but like bread that is baked, or gold and silver glowing in a furnace. And we smelt a sweet scent, like frankincense, or some precious spices. Now, Polycarp was nonetheless murdered for his faith. The story continues. It says that eventually when those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. 
And when he did this, such a great quantity of blood flowed that the fire itself was extinguished. Y'all, Peter acknowledges suffering. He knew suffering himself. He's a pastor and he wants to comfort and encourage other followers of Jesus. He also wants us to know that our suffering is being used for our good. Again, in verse six and seven, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter's fellow apostle, uh, Paul, he echoes this in his own letter to the church in Rome. He says this in Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As a follower of Jesus, your suffering is not in vain. It is shaping and forming you into a new people, forming you into the body of Christ. And this is a hard reality, but most of us know it to be true. It's the fire, the struggles in life that form us, that shape us, and that make us who we are. God is good. Suffering is real and it can be overwhelming. So to Christians facing trials and suffering of every kind, Peter offers exactly what we need. How do we sustain these trials? How do we move forward in the midst of the suffering? Remember, ultimate or even general pessimism, that's off the table for the Christian, right? We can't just say it's never gonna work out. But optimism is often naive. Things don't always just work out. That can't be the answer either. What we need is hope. The Hebrew word, one of the Hebrew words for hope, it's actually, it's the word for a cord like this. And it's actually the word for when this cord is pulled tightly. That's the Hebrew word for hope a tightly pulled cord waiting for something to happen. There's a tension in the word hope. It is not naive optimism as if nothing wrong will ever happen again. It acknowledges there's tension. This cord could break. Hope is the word for the tension and the expectation that we all have as we wait and place that hope in Jesus. When Peter decides to give his people this hope, what's the first thing he talks about? In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first thing Peter talks about when he wants to give hope to his people is the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we have hope. And not just hope, we have a living hope. We have an inheritance. We have a future that can never perish or spoil or fade. It can never be taken away because it is kept safe. It's guarded by God himself in heaven. My son, Ben, he just finished reading a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was reading it for class. 
I'm so glad that they had them read that book. Uh, If you haven't read that book, you need to go read that book. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, a philosopher, and Holocaust survivor. He and his family spent time at Auschwitz. He later was transferred to the work camps near Dachau, which I had the opportunity to visit last spring. In the midst of his own suffering, his own persecution while he served in those camps, he saw patience. He took on patience so that he could help, so he could help others cope with this new reality that they were facing, with this life in prison in a concentration camp. And he also did this so that he could better understand suffering and its impact on human life. So he wrote this book uh, later in life about this experience. And he says that as he met with people, he began to notice the different ways that people respond, the ways they try to cope with suffering. He says, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by a lack of meaning and purpose. He said that to people who lose meaning and purpose, uh, they they can become like animals He saw them, they just started to live by instinct. They would become bitter, angry, even violent. But he also saw others who just became like zombies. Without meaning and purpose, they were just bodies in motion. You see, he explains in this book what what many already know, that we are hope-based creatures. That we have to have a story to guide and shape our lives. But he began to notice that the kind of story we tell ourselves, it really matters. And stories that are based on what we have called naive optimism, they often have tragic outcomes. Frankel tells the story of one man who was just convinced after going into the camp that the war would be over in three short months. The man even set a specific date for it. The day came and went, and the war was clearly not over. And Frankel watched as that man contracted a fever, fell ill, and died exactly one week after his optimistic deadline passed. Others in the camp, they would imagine for themselves a life after the war. They would dream where everything from their old life would be restored. The family would be reunited. They would have their jobs, their homes, their communities would be restored. It's naive optimism. It sets us up for disappointment that we we can't bear. Even in regular life, outside of an event like a world war, y'all, we lose things. Things change over time. We lose those that we love. We lose jobs. We lose our abilities. We lose physical strength, our health. Life is always changing and it is often riddled with loss. We know this practically in our own day. After 9-11, things are never the same. After two years of pandemic life, things will never be the same. And there is loss in that. So hope is not just wishing that we could get back what we had before. Hope is the hard work. It's the tension that we face as we find meaning and purpose in what is now and in what is to come. 
Frankel found that those who came out of the Holocaust relatively healthy, ready for their new lives, they found hope in simple things. He talks about a baker who focuses his energy just on one day smelling freshly baked bread again. That's it. And, and he could anticipate this, even as he's being served the awful rations at the camp, even that terrible moment, a miserable meal, even that can be imagined as a future hope. A musician uh, looked forward to the day when he could pick up an instrument and make music again. Even in the camps, he could internalize that hope as he heard the notes already playing in his mind. Or as he worked, when the worker next to him began to hum a familiar tune under his breath, or as the inmates, as they would often do, would join together in singing at night, exhausted from their work, laying in their barracks. Frankel himself practiced this hope by speaking to humans about the deep things they experienced during and after the war. And here's what they had in common. Not only did they hope for simple things, but they didn't put their hope in others. They didn't put their hope in possessions or position or status or even in their own abilities. What they had in common was that they put their hope in simple things that couldn't be taken away. And that's the key. Putting your hope in a simple thing that nobody can take away. So the question for us today, in what do we find meaning and purpose? Where do we find our hope? And maybe we're putting our hope in other people, even good people, family, friends, leaders. But y'all, every, every single one of us knows the truth that people will let us down, even the good ones. Putting our hope in others is to place on them an unfair burden that they can never carry. So free your family and friends and leaders from the burden of carrying your hope. Maybe we're putting our hope in ourselves, in our own abilities, in our strengths, in our talents. And those are gifts that are, of course, to be used, but they're not eternal. They don't even last throughout this lifetime. Injuries, age, circumstances. They always catch up with us in the end. Free yourself from carrying the burden of your own hope because it's a weight that you can't bear. And maybe you're putting future hope in, in a 401k or your portfolio or some inheritance that was left behind on earth for you. All of those things are dependent upon something else. They're dependent upon a market and an economy that goes up and down, unreliable by its very nature. I mean, how many tragic world events began because a market crashed? We can be tempted to put our hope in progress, in technology. And you all, know, I'm a fan of technology. I love technology. But is the world in general any closer to that utopia that progress and technology have promised? No. Some things are easier, some things are better, but other things are significantly worse. Y'all, I'm not demonizing. These can be good things and they can be gifts, but they are things that can be destroyed 
things that somebody else can take away from us so they cannot bear the weight of our hope. They are not eternal things. So I don't know what you're putting your hope in today. I would just encourage you to to wrestle with it. And as you do, consider 1 Peter chapter one. Bookmark it. Read it and reflect on it. Peter is offering us a gift. He's reminding us to put our hope in the one thing that can't be taken away. The one thing that is safeguarded for us by our Father in heaven. Our inheritance, not from a market, but our inheritance as children of God that's made possible by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Y'all, that is the only future that we can rely on. It is our only hope. There's a lot more uh, to say about this, about exactly how the resurrection offers this hope, about what the resurrection life looks like. And we're gonna talk about that in the coming weeks, all the way through the month of May. Uh, But for this week, I I do wanna give you some homework. Um, Since I'm not there, you have work to do. I want you to look up an article from Christianity Today, and I believe that they're gonna put a screenshot up on the screen with a QR code that if you're fast enough, you can take out your phone and you can hold your camera up to that QR code and it'll take you right to this article. It's an article on Christianity Today by Tim Keller and it's called Hope for a Better World Starts with the Resurrection. We'll put a link to it on our website as well. We've printed some copies uh, for those of you that are here today. It's brilliant. I'd love for you all to read it in preparation for the weeks to come. There is deep truth in this article. We're gonna reflect on it. We're gonna reflect more on what the disciples have to say throughout the New Testament about the resurrection life. As we get ready for Pentecost at the beginning of June, as we get ready for the summer and the bright future God has in store for us. Let's pray. Father, as we're now two weeks past Easter Sunday, we are reminded once again that every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. And when I was thinking earlier about how the disciples never talked about the resurrection until after Easter, um, sometimes it's the same here in the church. That we, we don't talk about it often until Easter and a couple weeks after. And then we go back into the patterns and habits of our lives. Every Sunday in the Christian church is Resurrection Sunday. I pray that this historical event in time and space that fundamentally changed reality, God, I pray that that event would sit heavy on us, that we would truly reflect on what it means, that we would receive the good news and the hope that when this life does come to an end, there is something glorious waiting for us. But until then, The resurrection happened 2,000 years ago. It means something even today. Help us to figure out what that means in our lives and how we can share that hope and truth with others. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.